Hey everyone, it's the introduction to the podcast. Uh, today's guest is Aniko Hanak. Uh, for reasons that I embarrassingly forgot to ask her in the podcast, even though it says Aniko on her website, everyone calls her Ancha. So that's also what I'm going to do uh, in this introduction. Maybe one day we'll get the answer. Anyway, Ancha is an assistant professor at the computer science department of the University of Zurich. Her work investigates a variety of content-serving websites. And so what are those? Those are search engines, online stores, job search sites, freelance marketplaces, that kind of thing. And the thing is that in this online in online ecosystems like those, the thing is that companies, they track everything that the users do, every move, and they feed all this data into big data algorithms to match users with the most interesting or the most relevant content. And the problem here is that since these algorithms learn based on human data, they're likely to pick up on, on all kinds of social biases and they're likely to unintentionally reinforce them. And we don't really know anything about it. And what Ancha did is that in her PhD work, she created a methodology. It's called algorithmic auditing, which is a way to try to uncover these potential negative impacts of large online systems. Now, in our conversation... We talk about her background in math, sociology, and computer science. We talk about how she was too lazy to read an important book. We talk about how a kind gesture from Laszlo Barabashi changed her life in a way. And finally, we go deep and we explore the why. We explore the how of Ancha's pioneering work, which is all these ideas that led to algorithmic auditing. And then we end up talking about her recent paper, which is called Understanding Inequalities in Ride-Hailing Services Through Simulations. And this is interesting because, in a way, this paper is a reaction to some of the limitations of algorithmic auditing. But anyway, enough jibber-jabber. Let's get to the show! Welcome, <laughs> so I'm, I'm cool with What? Do you feel cool with these headphones? No, I feel uncomfortable with the headphones. And I feel uncomfortable, with, like everyone else, with the sound of my own voice. So it's not... Um, but it makes a really nice sound come out in the end. So it turns out, like, I, in the beginning, I just recorded it on Zoom. But, it, but, it, but actually, when you record audio... You need like special software to to remove the S's and your little like uh, like those sounds and all the weird stuff you do <laughs> with your voice, and so this whole thing does that already. But anyway, I digress. We're gonna get started. There's gonna be an intro to the podcast where I tell everyone who you are. So I'm not gonna do that now, even mm -hmm. though. Um, so instead, we're just going to get right into it. And, um, and, and so the thing that this podcast is called is called Too Lazy to Read the Paper. But what it also is, is that I get to ask questions of scientists about them and their careers and their lives. So that's what we're going to do in the first part. So, so, so I want to begin to kind of can you set us up with where, where, how did you grow up? Where did you, where do you come from? What's, what's like the situation with little, <laughs> little Ancha <laughs> wanting to, <laughs> wanting, thinking about what, what did you want to do? Like, did you always know that you wanted to be a scientist? Oh my or God, no. This is amazing. <laughs> no? So what, no. what, 
What what did you dream of being uh, when you were 12 years old? I think I already at 12 I was confused yes. about what I want to be because I was interested in a lot of things. And somehow I I don't know. Maybe that came later, but it feels like a lot of pressure to decide what you want to do. Totally. If um if you're interested in multiple things. But what what things were you interested in? Um I don't know like uh really crazily different things like i was pretty good at math yes um but then i was like really into horse riding and like therapy with horses nah, <laughs> just, there's no wrong answers <laughs> it's cool and languages and yes. which languages um i know i was learning so i knew german because i lived in germany a little bit as a yep. kid i learned English, Latin, Italian. Nice. <laughs> so, like, more like linguistics in general. Yes. I think it was interesting. Yes. Um, but then, of course, I had these phases where it also seemed to make a lot of sense to become a doctor. <laughs> or, or <laughs> like a more safe... Okay. <laughs> I'm thinking horse therapy is great, but maybe maybe accounting <laughs> would also be a good, <laughs> good life choice. Yeah, I don't know. And then, of course, like, I was interested in sociology psychology these yes sorts of things that was maybe a bit later yeah um but actually i do did grow up unfortunately in an environment where somehow like real sciences were valued much higher than let's say sociology or psychology so so when you call it real sciences what what like do you mean the natural sciences uh, sorry or? that's what i meant yeah yes um Because I feel like there might be some social scientist. Uh -huh. No, no, no. I didn't mean real in the sense of real, right? Like, no, I know. I thought this is Maybe we should preface this by saying that yeah, uh, sure. you have a fantastic, beautiful uh, baby who's right outside the door as we speak. And that you got three hours of sleep last night and then you got on a plane. <laughs> <laughs> you got on a plane. We're recording this. So, um, so that there's also that. But uh, yes. Anyway. Okay. So... You grew up in an environment where there's an emphasis on somehow that the, that the natural sciences were held yeah, I mean, in a high I place. I had or? two parents who were mathematicians, and yeah, all right. and also I grew up in Hungary, so Hungary is pretty well known, I guess, for like theoretical math and like totally and physics and so on. And it has this strange education system where you have these really good elite high schools that that often focus on math yeah quite a lot so already in high school i had i think seven classes per week of math <laughs> <laughs> well you should get a little bit closer to the mic oh, i'm just saying okay. that for the all right so but so yes i mean in physics right hungary is super famous for kind of the The, the men from Mars, as I think Richard Rhodes, who wrote the book about the atomic bomb, he that's what they called the Hungarian physicist that came to work on the bomb because they were so crazy, right? Just like von Neumann <laughs> and <laughs> Wigner, I think, also like all yeah. these giants, and of course Erdős. There's there's a pretty intense tradition, but so you were at this kind of elite high school already then, yeah, and um, and then I somehow. When I had to apply to university, I sort of, I was so undecided yeah. that it felt like studying math is kind of the safe option, <laughs> <laughs> the option I know, which I know sounds crazy, <laughs> but like 
my dad was really, really against something like sociology or... Right. Yeah. And, uh, but then, of course, super quickly, I noticed that I don't really fit in. Like, it, it was full of kind of... I felt like it's full of geniuses and I'm not one of them. Yes. <laughs> and uh, it's weird that I'm also interested in other things. And then basically two years later, I started uh, studying sociology on the side. Yes. Which, um, I mean, it was a very strange thing at, this, at the time, or at least in Hungary. <laughs> yes. At this kind of conservative university. I remember some exam where my teacher looked at this like little book that had all the grades uh -huh. um, and he was like what are these classes that you're taking <laughs> 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 what are you doing with your life and then he gave me a lecture on how i should basically lock myself in a dark room for days <laughs> and not come out until i realized that this is a wrong path that i'm but on. hang on who is saying this i missed like it. a math professor that i was doing an exam with like an okay. oral exam Right, but so he, you had like your little book with you to the exam, and then he like grabbed it and was like, no, well, "Wait a you minute!" You know, like we had these little books where you put the grades for all oh, of your classes. So and he exams. had to write the grade in, and then he was writing the grade in, and he he looked at kind of the other classes I was taking, <laughs> and there were all these like sociology and political science classes. But it might be like a good sign, you know, that he saw he was trying to be nice. Right? Like, do you know what I mean? He saw talent in you, though. That's why he uh, wanted you locked in a dark room thinking okay, about that. Okay, that never really occurred to me. <laughs> <laughs> it felt more like... But don't you think? Right? Like, he's trying to kind of saying, Here, here's this bright student. Let me help her on her way with... Finding. On the right way, right? Yeah, like, yeah. Uh, I mean, me not that it's... Fi find their way back to the... <laughs> Wild. That's crazy. Yeah. But but how was it being... So I was not at any kind of elite uh, high school, right? I was in a kind of a high school where I could do amazing by not really <laughs> doing anything. And it's not because I'm a genius, but because... So, like, did you... Was it... Was there a lot of pressure already then? To be honest, no. I I felt like... No, it was like a really nice place socially. Yeah, it was quite a liberal high school actually. So cool. You <laughs> But then at university, somehow, I'm just trying to get the the situation if it's totally different in Hungary, really still, or if it's more the vibe. Or I mean, uh, I I, f I feel like at university it still was pretty different at the time in the sense that uh, it was really like the best people in the field who were teaching you yeah as well and they weren't maybe necessarily the best teachers but like no. really bright brains <laughs> yeah yeah i met bright them. minds and, <laughs> and um you know we had very few women and there was yeah. really there is this stereotype kind of genius who's born to do this yeah who's born to do science and that's the only thing they're interested in yes And I think I was very sensitive to not matching that stereotype. And so I, I felt like I'm kind of in the wrong place. Yes. But it's also a wild and crazy stereotype, right? That <laughs> Because yeah, it's I mean, so I'm different from... I'm so angry in retrospect, yes. I have to say, because I was really raised with this idea that having talent is worth much more than doing the work. Yes. And actually I've been 
proving to myself for the last 10-15 years that that's not true. No, no, absolutely. But it's, yeah. No, no, but I think it is a European thing, and I think it's much yeah. less where I'm from, but there's definitely a sense, like, as I grew up, my feeling was that the a genius is someone who could go and do really well without doing any studying. Yep. And I, I still think that my wake-up call was my first trip to the U.S. when I just found these, when I basically met <laughs> these American students, and they were all smarter than me, and they had all read way more than me, and they were all working way harder than me. And I just was like, oh, I have to up my game now, because this is like a completely different thing, but it's also freeing, because it basically tells you if you do the work and you are focused, then you can do amazing stuff, and it's not about being a genius. But I think it's, it's in a way, it's, it's exactly destructive to a lot of people this having this ideal that you can be born a genius and then you can just be amazing without having worked on it at yeah, all. But I think this this uh, way of thinking also affects the way education is structured. Yes. So my wake-up call was also the US. Yeah. And it was really amazing that I could take classes where they defined exactly what kind of work, like what kind of work we have to do throughout yeah. the year. Yes, and then you know exactly what get grade you're gonna get <laughs> and what you have to do to get yeah. that. Yes, and it was just like, wow, you can just. <laughs> and people are so much happier, right? Even in a workplace, in a way, like, what do you need to do to get promoted? Well, are you just walking in like a haze of, well, maybe if I do everything I can, something nice will happen? Or it's like, no, actually, what we expect of you is this and this. It's like in many many contexts, it's a lot more useful yeah. to to have more well-defined uh, okay but so we we find you now at hungarian university there's a math teacher who just told you <laughs> to go into or a math professor who's probably genius who just told you to go into a dark room and think about your life and stop doing all that silly political science and sociology then what happens then um then i somehow finish and and this is like an undergrad in math yeah, that you finish yeah. with some very mm-hmm. with some very cool stuff on the side. No, it's an undergrad in math and yeah. like a completely separate sociology degree. Oh, okay. At a different branch of the same university. Yep. And I mean I found it actually difficult to finish, to be honest. I was not very motivated by the end. Uh but then Something really random happened, mm-hmm. which was that some friends told me about a book of Laszlo Bonafash. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, at a, so some friends of mine yeah. um, were having a goodbye party because they were moving to Boston. Right. <laughs> and they were telling me about him and they, because I was basically at this party complaining about my life. I was like, yes. what am I going to do? I'm finishing math and sociology. Like, there's no way to combine these things. Uh-huh. And then they were like, well, read this book. <laughs> that's pretty That's pretty <laughs> and, nice. And talk to this guy. Yeah. And then I, what did I do? Um, I did not read the book, <laughs> <laughs> but I emailed the guy. <laughs> 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 the same day, basically. <laughs> this, and for all the young researchers, <laughs> this, is, this is perfect for the podcast called Too Lazy to Read the Paper. <laughs> I mean, just I email, just email the guy. I was thinking, I'm going to read the book. <laughs> I like obviously read the back of the book. <laughs> <coughs> we 
Which one was it? The first, the linked book or a uh, different one? Yeah, it was linked. Yeah, yeah. And then cool. um, I didn't really know what I'm doing, right? Like no. I had no idea about what a PhD means, or yes, because um, that was going to be my question. Like, I'd, you no, were like, still okay, thinking Hungarian university. No one tells you you have an option to go abroad. No one tells you there are interdisciplinary <laughs> sciences. No one tells you what it means to be a PhD, uh, do a PhD. Um, so I didn't really have a clue. And then uh, the cool thing that happened was that Laszlo actually replied to my email. Yeah, cool. Which was basically just like, hey, I'm Ancha. Um, I studied this and that, and I don't know what I want to do <laughs> with my life. You should dig out that email. <laughs> I feel like that would be a cool document. Yeah. And then, um, <laughs> and then he was like, "Okay, um, I'm gonna see you in two weeks. Do you want to talk?" Nice. He was just there for a conference, and then I met him, and he basically immediately proposed um, that I should apply for PhDs. Mm -hmm. And I was really confused because, like, someone actually trusted in my abilities based on a conversation that That's was like super weird and new <laughs> yeah me. i did i had no idea this happened this is super cool uh, and like a nice gesture and a kind of a like a testament to the fact that if you're like a senior person you can change someone's life by taking the time to meet with them right yeah definitely and and i guess he maybe also trusts the Hungarian education t system. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I I'm pretty sure, like, I, I'm kind of thinking, like, why did he answer? Because it's hard to get an answer out of Laszlo in in general. But, it, I mean, it must be just kind of that he's, like, he's thinking, well, all right, like, the students that come out of this degree, like, they know their stuff, so. Yeah, and, I mean, you also always look for potential talented PhD students, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, but I had no clue. And then I applied basically super quickly to two PhD possibilities. Yes. One in Boston and one at Notre Dame, actually. Mm -hmm. And Wh wh when in time is this? 2010. All right. So Laszlo is in Boston. He's not at Notre Dame. No, he just moved. Yeah. Yeah. I know because I, oh. I did a postdoc with him that started... In like I, I want to say like two thousand seven, eight, mm -hmm. and he had just moved in. Yeah, exactly. So I think yeah. we we overlapped there. Um, but I didn't actually. So he never suggested to do it with him. He connected no. me with people who do similar stuff to yeah to what I described to be my interest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there was this one particular young professor, <laughs> Alan Mislove. Yes, you are also know. Yes. Who was excited to take me on? Yeah. Basically. And then three months later, I found myself in Boston. <laughs> <laughs> but that's also pretty wild. Like, it's a yeah, nice I mean, move. Like, you sit at a party, you complain, and then, like, yeah. it all. This also, you know, like, I'm. I'm asking these questions because I th I'm fascinated with how careers work and I'm fascinated with different motivations that different people have. And I'm thinking that it's useful for young people to know about it and also just. Like uh, this thing that you didn't know about the PhD, uh, because I, I had the same feeling. Like I was, I knew that I did a bachelor's, and then in Denmark you have kind of have to do a master's afterwards. Same, but I, yeah. 
but I didn't know much about the PhD and I didn't know much about postdocing until I was almost done with the PhD. And then I, then I find out, okay, you're not just a professor, but you start as an assistant professor. And then like at every step I did, I, you know, like I didn't have any idea of that kind of whole sweep of what are the many steps. I just, I was on like one step and then at the end of it, I learned about the next one. And I but think don't it's also, you feel like that saves you also a lot of stress potentially. Yeah, for sure. Like when I talk to students these days, they're like, yeah, I want to do a PhD at some point. <laughs> <laughs> or I want to be a professor and they know exactly what path is going to take them there. Do, absolutely. Absolutely. I think, I mean, I don't think I would have dreamed of taking those steps anyway. I'm not from a background of math professors at all. So, so I never, like, I never thought that it was in the cards for me in a way personally so that took a lot of pressure like i was kind of happily surprised at every step that it worked out oh but me too just yeah. for a different reason like, yeah sure i just never you know what i described of like not feeling like i fit in yes i always thought you have to have a certain personality and like interest to yeah. be able to do a phd so i never really yes. thought that would happen cool but but so now you find yourself in Alan's uh, group, mm -hmm. right? And uh, <laughs> and luckily, you, your personality so far is serving you well. But <laughs> Alan, Alan is in a way like a kind of hardcore, no nonsense computer science guy yeah. who has like very little patience for. Like I think he respects sociology and he he sees that there's a value in it, but he's kind of like very much like that's not like I'm doing like this thing and I know what it is, and I know how it's moving. So how. How did that work with kind of your interest and passion for these like more social science things? And I see, and I can totally see it working, but uh, I want to hear how mm -hmm. what it felt like for you. I mean, to me, it felt like at the beginning I was mostly learning from Alan. Yeah, he had what you say about hardcore computer science. It doesn't only uh, conflict a little bit the sociology, but it also does with the math. Um, yes. It was really strange to me that suddenly we care about not only to prove something, but also care about, you know, how quickly it's going to run. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that it finishes wow. in lifetime or something. <laughs> um, I never yeah. thought about those things before. No. <laughs> so <laughs> it was learn. a lot of learning at the beginning. Yeah. Also like very basic programming things as well. Yes. Like I, um, I never really touched programming before that. No, no. And he's a kind of like beast. Guru. genius guru programmer right <laughs> like it's not just he doesn't just know the theory but he 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 can like whip up like a super fast i mean i would say it was super no deep waters yes me. i mean i had to take computer science classes at a phd level all of yes. a sudden uh but i quickly realized i never worked this much and this intensely not not worked sorry learned yeah this much in my life so it's kind of worth it yes And I was learning through doing, so that felt much, much better. Yes. Um, and the cool thing about Ellen was he gave me a project right away. Yep. Um, actually, <laughs> you're on that paper. <laughs> came out of that project. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember that paper. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> um, and then I feel like once I kind of, learned and had a lot of fun with the more computer science -y things i slowly brought in my own yeah 
more social science perspective. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. And and um, and uh, yeah, I mean there there is a steep learning curve, but I think it's this is also just like a really good illustration of this thing that it's so it's so important to have the right motivation and the right attitude more than the right skill set. Like the skill set you can you can acquire if you want it for I don't know. Like somehow it's it's like that. That's more and more also what I look for in students is is like the asking the questions that you ask and the, your attitude more than you know like if you're kind of super accomplished in this specific thing or that specific mm -hmm. thing. Um, and so I I have another thing. Which is so like clearly uh, <laughs> I can hear from this that you're like a math genius. But one of the things that programming did for me with math is also that programming also almost changed how I think about math <coughs> or look at math in the sense that programming kind of you know like for me math is kind of like you're you're doing like group theory. There's like a theorem and and like the jump is huge right do you know what i mean like to wrap your brain around how the, the mechanism is is like a big very big cognitive leap and and there's no way of breaking it down like you just kind of have to swallow it in like one bite and i think what programming does for me is also it makes math like more trial and error and that you can take almost any problem and kind of break it into little <laughs> little steps does that make sense yeah and i find that also completely liberating about it so that you don't have to have like do everything in your head you can kind of be like okay we're going in that direction like let me let me do, does that make sense no completely and even more than that what happened to me sometimes with programming i did it before i understood it yeah And I just kept doing it, and at some point I understood. <laughs> and for math, that would never work, right? Like no, no, you no. always expect to understand yeah. it. <laughs> but but it's but it's like but by seeing the output, that's what I also yeah. mean by trial and error. By mm -hmm. seeing the output, it helps you understand it. And and you kind of need you know like if you just then keep going and not understand <laughs> it, then it's a big problem, right? But if you if you use it as a tool for learning, I think it's incredibly yeah. powerful that you can kind of do something without fully understanding it then seeing the output and be like, okay, what what it does is this thing, and then you can, you can, yeah, you can somehow iterate your way out of uh, a lot of things, which is, yeah, which is really, which is really amazing. Okay, and so as part of your PhD work, you and Alan got this interest, and, and I, when I first heard about it, and I want to hear your take about it, and uh, on this, and I want to preface it, by saying that I'd completely changed my mind on this. But when I first heard it, I thought like, so the entire Northeastern research group has as a goal in a way to ask questions along the lines of, we, we want to take what it is that the Google, what Google does and try and understand like what, what is going on with those algorithms, right? So, so, so like I do like a Google search, I see some output And I want to understand like what's going on behind the scenes to generate that output, something like that, but much more generally. Is that like an okay characterization? Like kind of understanding. Yeah. And and the thing that that I was skeptical about in the beginning <laughs> was to say like, well, why would you ever do that? Because you just like ask the person in Google what the thing was doing, they could tell you, and then. Um, 
<laughs> and then you would you would know it. Like, why would you do experiments and query Google and so on? And so, my take on it is clearly wrong. But maybe you can kind of explain why and begin to motivate like the stuff that you're doing because I think it's more important now than ever. Kind of. I mean, it's really surprising to me that you asked this question <laughs> because I get this question a lot from like uh, math people. Yeah. Who imagine there is a formula. Yes. Um, but I think you're kind of a complex systems person. <laughs> so you know that there's unpredictable things happening. Anyways, but this is what I thought many years ago. The, yeah, it is, but it's also my first take, like many years ago when I was maybe more, like remember like when I came, I came also as a kind of someone who comes from physics, who thinks that the best thing in the world is equations. Mm -hmm. Data is for people who can't do proper theory. And like that, that was kind of my starting point. Yeah, okay, I'll answer seriously. So yes, maybe Google has a formula, although even, even that I doubt because they have different departments where different engineers like add to that formula and then it changes over time. Yes. And so on. Um, but let's say there is a formula. We still don't really know um, anything about the output. Yeah. So like there are, if you're interested how the output does according to certain metrics, mm -hmm. then you do need to really focus on the output of the algorithm and evaluate it against those kind of system level yes. metrics, which of course in theory Google could do, but the, the formula itself is not enough. And mm -hmm. also they would need to put a lot of resources into doing that kind of evaluation. And yeah. of course, we're not only talking about Google. We could be talking about a website that, let's say, um, connects freelancers with employers. And um, we could be talking about how the algorithm of this website discriminates. Yeah. Um, and that website could have been put up by three guys in a basement who have zero resources to check for discrimination yeah. on their website. So. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I mean, I think that there's like a whole list of crazy things that happen in these big complicated systems. Like, first of all, like Google won't share the algorithm and we as a society need to know about it until some legislation makes it, makes them publish it, right? Like th that's what I see is like one, one level is like, we actually need to know about it, even if it were Simple, like that's the thing. Then it's like, as you also, I'm just repeating because I want to kind of really take this apart because I think it shows how important it is. And so stop me if I'm saying something that you <laughs> disagree with. But then even inside Google, like you you suggested this, but you didn't say it. But it's not just one algorithm, right? It's like no, no, 10 no. algorithms that are interacting in some kind of crazy... I mean, there is no formula. There is 10 algorithms interacting and there is um, constant tweaking, right? Yes. Like really all the time and experimenting within yeah. Google and uh, yeah. And then on top of that, the data that comes in is also going to shape the output and they don't necessarily kind of control the flow of that yeah, or the complexity exactly. of that. Yeah. So that's another thing. So it's like, like when I kind of think carefully about it, it's insane, <laughs> it's insane <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, the thing is that at the time... Um, I didn't really know about complex systems or yes. I didn't know this term. Yeah. But like thinking about 
what Google actually does. It is a big and complex system. That, yeah, yeah, but it's somehow even worse, right? Because a complex system that I, the way I would describe it, is kind of like many simple agents that interact, and then the sum of all those interactions is somehow something you couldn't predict. <laughs> From the individual agents. Yeah, I mean, it's also a lot of little algorithms yeah. interacting. <laughs> yeah. And, and, I mean, all the feedback loops. We haven't exactly. really mentioned feedback loops. No, like. exactly. That's why we're talking about it, because it's hard to kind of uh, even enumerate all the things that can be going on. But essentially, this is, uh, if I'm not mistaken, is like, is the direction that your research really has carried on and where you will have also you talked about this like pulling in the social science and and so on and this is where where you have been going mainly is that also a correct characterization yes that's true so i had this kind of toy project at first that i yeah. did with you i need to mention the title of that paper <laughs> go <laughs> it's for called it tweeting in the rain <laughs> that series <laughs> um and and can i just say i mean first of all it's a highly cited uh paper right it's shocking to me (laughs) (laughs) and it is a precursor to like a huge literature that works with basically using technology to measure the changes brought on by climate and now climate change oh wow true so so there's actually like a whole field now that where this was completely pioneering right like alan and I, i i like we i remember kind of talking about it and this was more like a cute 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 thing we thought about and and you could say that i mean the analyses that we do in that paper because i think are kind of not sophisticated or fantastic and uh all that stuff but i still think that i still think that it's the this idea that you can think about social media or all of these other data collection platforms as a kind of like a sensor network spread all over the planet and giving us information localized information is kind of a wild thought yeah. right so i i like that paper <laughs> <laughs> just to be just to be clear and and the title you could say you know dylan isn't it tweeting in the rain no it's singing in the rain god damn what's there's also dylan oh that's the the tweets they are changing it's like a uh, theme yeah. that yeah, alan yeah. has that it's a paper he did with another student uh, chloe <laughs> <laughs> uh, but so anyways that's not the direction my phd <laughs> went into no <laughs> not at all but this is like a yeah the fred astaire did you come up with the title how did the title come about <laughs> um i really don't remember all right i just remember that we were both feeling sort of embarrassed about it but knew nice. that it would work yes <laughs> well i mean um like I said, he later wrote a paper called "The Tweets They Are Changing." So the whole song, song uh, lyric uh, works. But not every paper that Alan does has a has a uh, classic song in the title. But but is this a good time? Do you think to kind of get to our um, paper that I've been too lazy to read? Um, maybe I would I? just answer your question from before. Do it. Yes. Just um, so after this. Uh, little fun toy project we actually started working on something more serious and this idea was super exciting to me uh basically what you described trying to figure out why google shows us what it decides to show us yeah 
and how to build up an infrastructure that is able to measure that or like and do that systematic testing on that and this was at the time where kind of the first articles started appearing mm -hmm. uh, about this whole filter bubble concept yeah uh, but it was all based on anecdotal evidence and so we wanted to do proper measurements mm -hmm. and it turned out to be much more difficult than we thought but also super exciting so that this is really like caught my attention but maybe we should we should just describe that because it's wild and so i know that paper a little bit uh from reading it but also because piotr who is a kind of a shared uh, friend of ours was also on this paper yeah. and and so he told me some of the stuff you guys were doing and it's wild right so so maybe tell people like how do you <laughs> how do you do that like what is the extent because it's it's a lot about a lot of server instances and there's so much stuff going on so how do you measure google right how does that how does it how do you even get started maybe tell people that because it's wild i mean you start thinking about you know when you search for something you see kind of the version google decides to show you but then mm -hmm. how do you compare it to you know what you would get or other people would get or you know people at the other side of the world and then you quickly arrive at this idea that you're gonna have to create fake accounts <laughs> yes <laughs> that where you are able to calibrate the feature of those accounts or kind of like the environment in which the search is being run yes um and and so how many fake accounts did you create <laughs> i mean multiple hundreds i don't yes. remember exactly <laughs> but what i know is like google was super strict about creating new accounts yeah. so this is where we had to be really really tricky um we were basically you know like new ip address didn't even work anymore you had yeah. to like associate phone numbers yeah um, i remember all the stuff like and then you, you had something that worked but then they like threw like a new validation step in there yeah and exactly and then i was like going into different professors offices to use their phone numbers to validate different accounts <laughs> and like i remember i i really don't know how that happened but like night before a deadline or something piotr and i ran to uh the Mac store yeah to like create new accounts on those computers <laughs> and then we like killed the ip for google <laughs> for the whole Mac store <laughs> it was pretty crazy like, a lot of fun <laughs> yes no no but it's it's the best right so 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 to create a new account you need not just a new ip because you can buy those or you can you can get those but then google will be like well it's from the same family of ips so like what something weird you know, like really like they do proper like fingerprinting so yeah. you need to be on a new computer with a new ip yeah at some point have a new phone number and so on yeah um, <laughs> and you i mean you i had don't want to say that this was like the most difficult thing about this project but definitely the most fun yeah thing yeah because i remember i had this like custom email at that point that i would send like every other day yeah to alan and piotr being like please don't forget to create your two accounts today <laughs> <laughs> But I like it because it shows kind of like the wild, crazy places you have to go to get your answers. Yeah. But in the end, you wrote a great paper about it, right? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> that you went to Brazil, dub, 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 something mm -hmm. like that. Yes, yeah. I remember. <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, and then basically we realized 
um, how important this methodology is actually in different contexts. Yes. So it's really not just about Google. We started with Google because, I don't know, because it's the biggest and kind of people had no idea that they personalize content. Yes. <laughs> you also chose like the hardest one. Like most other companies, yeah, you could have like true. no problem <laughs> <laughs> tested it. <laughs> um, but then like I basically continued my PhD on this topic. Yeah. Applying this methodology in different contexts. Uh, yeah. Okay. For example, in the context of online stores, yes. look at price discrimination and later on various labor market related platforms. Mm-hmm. And you and you should also tell people just like a like a sense like what did you find? Um, in the case of Google, actually, we found way less um, algorithmic personalization yeah. than kind of the anecdotes hinted at. Mm -hmm. But it totally aligned with Google's direction, so they actually focused their efforts more on to map and YouTube. Yes, I mean maps. YouTube and these kinds of services and not really on the search anymore. Yeah, and I remember it's something that let's like the it would it would remember like what it remembers your kind of most recent queries to give a kind of context for what you might be looking for, but then it forgets it over time was one of the things I remember. Yep. So if you <laughs> I mean another thing that we noticed was location of course is one of the biggest factors. Yes. Um, but I mean, ultimately, in any of these contexts, what I can say is that you do find the problems you're looking for. <laughs> so, yeah, like, yeah. you do find price discrimination, you yes. do find discrimination on the labor market, yeah. and so on. What's That's also what I wanted to get out of. Oh, uh, sorry. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so, the problems from kind of the offline world are always there yeah. in the online systems. And I think it's super exciting to see in what way they manifest and also like how to get sort of into these systems enough yeah. to, to be able to measure them or quantify them. Mm -hmm. um, uh, yeah. No, no. So do you think in general, like the, let's take price discrimination or whatever is your sense that this is something that people put into the algorithms or is it your sense that this is something that kind of comes incidentally? And I know you can't answer this and I know that, you know, even if there's a true answer, no one could ever know it, but is your sense, not when you look at like the type of stuff you find, does it look like people are using, like putting that in there or is it more kind of accidental that they, I don't know, show more expensive rooms to Mac users, stuff like that? And maybe you can't answer. But I, I'm, no, I'm I mean, always curious I think that how much like is. One or two years ago, I would have answered no, no, nothing is encoded. The algorithm is learning everything. Yeah. Because it's true that, for example, Google, I'm sure they don't create kind of bins for gender. It's yeah. really just like they learn on the typical behavior mm -hmm. and then they end up on aggregate showing different things to different demographic groups. Mm -hmm. But actually, recently, I've been more in touch with kind of small data science companies that do recommendation. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that they often do kind of quick and dirty. So they're like, oh, actually, we have better KPIs if we just show cars to men, so let's find the men. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I would say that's still not really 
the direction that the world is going in, but more yeah, the direction where algorithms just learn. Yeah, yeah. I'm just. It's just that some like I'm, you know, like we all talk about how uh, social media is uh, ruining the universe and so on. I'm I'm I kind of obsessed with this sense of like how much is how much is intentional and how much is unintentional. And I and my sense is exactly that. For a lot of the important stuff, it's unintentional. <laughs> that, I mean, it's uh, completely unintentional, and it's just ignorant. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's not an excuse. Um. <laughs> no, no, I didn't think you were saying it's an excuse, but um, they just have completely different goals. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> and then it, then it happened. No, no, super, super cool. But so, so maybe, so maybe now we can uh, we yeah. can talk a little bit more in detail about a recent paper. And the paper that uh, I have been too lazy to read is called <laughs> "It's called Understanding Inequalities in Ride-Hailing Services Through Simulations," and it's a paper that came out in Scientific Reports in 2020, and it's a collaboration with you and Esther. Okay. Yes. Hungarian <laughs> name. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say. I was gonna say that uh, Esther, I could probably handle without too much trouble, but uh, Bokani is uh, was a little bit more. Yes. So, so what's go- so? Um, I mean, the title is pretty descriptive. So we're looking <laughs> at ride hailing, and then we know that there are some inequalities. What, what's going on? Um. Okay. Where do I start? You could also just say like how did like a different way of telling it, but the paper that's maybe more fun is to say like how did you get started on it? Like not even get the results. Like what what how, what's the origin story of the paper? The origin story. Um, maybe now it will make sense that I wanted to explain a bit more about my PhD because I feel like it's very much a reaction. Yeah, to do it. all sure. the papers I've done before that because what those papers had in common was this uh, was the methodology. So mm-hmm. this kind of what we call algorithmic auditing, basically scraping a bunch of data or kind of like playing with the algorithm on, on a platform and then looking at the output. So it's all empirical, I would say. Yep. And it has a lot of limitations. For example, that we always scrape these websites at one point in time and it really doesn't scale over time. Mm-hmm. Um, it also doesn't scale in terms of like looking at multiple platforms because it's crazy amount of code you have to write and crazy amount of <laughs> fake accounts that yeah, you have yeah, to yeah. create. Um, and also just in some cases, the complexity becomes even worse than in the case of Google. So ride hailing actually is a very good example for this because it's the same app that Uber uses in every single uh, city. Mm-hmm. But it's a different market. Like, it's, yeah. it's different people actually working for Uber. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's different roadmaps, traffic situations, you know, different supply and demand. Totally. And so overall, um, you can't really say, okay, I'm going to audit the algorithm of Uber because it's like a bunch of different complex <laughs> systems. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Um, and so... I've been sort of toying with the idea of of simulating something like this for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then I I guess I got a bit closer to the network science community. Maybe that's also what triggered it. Yep. 
and then I met Esther <laughs> <laughs> and we basically started working on like a small simulation. Yes. Um, to look at ride hailing. And the other motivation, which is quite obvious, I guess, is that um, these workers of Uber and Lyft and so on are really not doing well. <laughs> so no. <laughs> they, um, I don't know why I'm laughing. They, there's, there was a lot of media articles and actually ethnographic research about the bad working conditions and kind of the, the lack of control that they have. Yeah. So we wanted to investigate the system with kind of like different tools. Yeah. But so how do you do that? So so we we have um we have uh we have an app that you install if you're a driver, then there's an app that you use if you're a user and like do your simulations go by, via that API somehow or no, it's completely detached from anything real, I would say. Yeah. Or anything having to do with Uber. Yeah. So so um, so so in so the ju yeah, just to give a bit of background, if yeah. you're an Uber driver, what happens to you is you download an app, you sit in your car, mm -hmm. and then the app is gonna basically at all times tell you where to go. Yes. And if you don't get a next passenger, then you like sit in the car and wait until yeah. something pops up. And basically, that's really all the information you have. Yep. You don't know anything about the traffic situation or kind of how many drivers, other drivers are out there and so on. Um, and the algorithm that Uber used, at least at the time, was super, super simple. Mm -hmm. They get requests from passengers and yep. then they send the closest Uber driver who's online. Yes, Okay, this, and this yeah. is like known that this is the app. I mean, this was known at the time, or actually, maybe it came out of a paper. Okay, um, yeah. so so you have basically like the how the algorithm works, mm. um, but you don't have all the different cities. So, what kind of simulations did you set up? So we, of course, um, couldn't possibly simulate this in like a million different like real cities. Yes. What we did was we we did a very simple version. So it was just a grid. Mm -hmm. um, and things that we varied were kind of the geometry of the city. Yeah. The, what the distribution of the passengers and the drivers looks like. Mm -hmm. um, what kind of uh, supply and demand there is at yes. the time. Because this is also something that highly varies over the day. Um, and then we basically wanted to see, depending on these parameters, um, how does the algorithm do in terms of um, the income of the drivers? So how much money do these yeah. drivers actually make at the end of, a, let's say, a working week? Yes. And uh, specifically to focus a bit on the distribution of these incomes, because uh, there's a huge inequality in how much money they make, or that was at least the assumption. Um, but this inequality is is very uh, tightly related to kind of the unpredictability. So what this really means is that you sit in your car at the beginning of the week and you just don't know how much money you're going to make. 
mm-hmm. and the variance in that can be really huge. Yeah, and so I remember there's something called surge pricing. So basically, if there is uh, a lot of demand but not so many drivers, then the prices go way up, and then I suppose the drivers also make more money. So the income can that also depend on something like that, or is that not part of it? Or I mean, it's not really part of the paper, and but that just uh, makes it mind, worse. In my mind, it's kind of in the category of, you know, the in traditional taxi um, uh, systems, the supply and the demand evens out to some extent mm-hmm. because they they have some amount of knowledge and they communicate with each other and there's like the central yeah. information thingy. Um, but in Uber, like no one has any information. Yeah. So what that leads to is that sometimes when there's like a football game just ended, mm-hmm. a million people are waiting there, they can't actually yeah. uh, get enough drivers there. So they try to like nudge. Dri- so I think this surging is the same category as drivers getting messages. You know, if you now decide to work six more hours, you will get, I don't yes. know, 20% more. Yeah, okay. Because those types of messages also exist. Yeah. But so, so, so you're kind of trying to say, I mean, or let me first, before I get it, like, so, so what you're saying is that if you're kind of, if you're a successful Uber driver, like you would read a bunch of papers on, <laughs> on traffic and human mobility and you would study, <laughs> you would study like the traffic patterns in your city because it's all about demand and it's all about not sitting and what, so, so basically you want to be where the demand is and the closer you are to like demand is like an abstract thing, the more money you will make. Is that, does that make sense? But that they're not getting that information at all, even though it exists in the system. I mean, they don't have that information, even though it exists, but they also don't really have the choice to turn down a ride. Yeah. So even if they would have the information, yeah, it's really not worth it to drive this person to the suburbs <laughs> because yeah, I will never it. get a ride there. Yeah. They will have to do it. Yes. Um, so it's, it is a lot about kind of the lack of control and lack of information, yes. Yes. Okay, but so what are the main... That, and that's wild, by the way. I mean... I guess what? It's wild. This thing that you can kind of... If you're unlucky... And I guess like the argument is that if you average over all the people, it's going to even out. But if you're unlucky, you can get like just a terrible ride that will take you away from a lot of earning, but you have to take it because it's it's like, um, yeah, they want someone to take that call. So it's, <laughs> they yeah. just pick you. Okay, but 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 if we come back to the paper, then what what is what do you learn from the these kind of the simulation of the ride sharing? Or not ride, ride hailing. Sorry. Yeah, it's also ride sharing. I yeah, <laughs> sure. I mean, we basically learn, at, I would say, two kind of high-level things. One is mm-hmm. that it is indeed a complex system, like really to the point where it's unpredictable what happens. Yeah. I should maybe add that we worked with realistic scenarios because we used... For a lot of the things, for example, calibrating supply and demand, we used data from a real like mm-hmm. taxi yeah. uh, service. Uh, so, so we basically we learned that like the 
depending on the geometry of the city and kind of these distributions of passengers and drivers and supply and demand ratio and so on, uh, both the average income of the drivers but also this inequality really highly differs and it does kind of like insane unpredictable things yeah so how does that manifest like very high variability or yes and also something like having two centers instead of one center will really change you know the average income oh wow or kind of like whether it's a traffic that's flowing towards the center or outside the center mm -hmm. will also change the inequality a lot. Um, stuff like whether the drivers decide uh, to stay in one place after they dropped someone or this, they decide to kind of move towards the center mm -hmm. will also make a big difference. But this difference depends again on kind of what time of day it is and how does the traffic <laughs> move. <laughs> wow. Um, so it is very complex. <laughs> yeah. But so you, you've already said this, I think implicitly, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask explicitly. So I see how this is different from the stuff that you've done before. Yes. I can... Uh, so so uh, <laughs> where there's no editing... So I'm just going to keep talking and you, I'll turn down your mic. <laughs> so Ancha, in, in addition to, um, in addition to um, being on a plane at five o'clock in the morning and having had three hours of sleep also <laughs> is recovering from the flu. So it's a, uh, we're getting you kind of a peak, <laughs> at peak form here, but that's what we do in this podcast is that it's, um, it's all about the sacrifice of science really. Uh, <laughs> wow <laughs> actually it's not um, but anyway so 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 I'd like to just ask you to put words on like so what is it that you get from these simulations that you don't get from these kind of more um, anecdotal or time specific situation specific studies you've done in the past and then uh, maybe also reflect on them what is it that you then lose or what is Mm -hmm. What is the thing that dis or is there a downside? I mean, maybe the downside is even easier. You yeah. obviously lose the reality <laughs> to some yeah. extent. <laughs> I mean, for example, that we work with this like grid mm -hmm. and not real roads. Um, but yeah, I so realism. Yeah, uh, that's definitely one thing. But I do think that. I don't even think of it as losing something because we use this method as a complementary to something else. Yes. And what we gain is as huge because we are able to kind of systematically analyze relationships between these parameters and do it in such a simplified model where we can like we can be sure that these effects we're seeing is coming from really the thing that we calibrate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so on top of that, we can look at scenarios that wouldn't actually occur naturally. Yeah. Uh, for example, that we ended up also tweaking the algorithm in the end, in the second part of the paper. Um, this is, of course, not something that Uber would allow us to do, but we were able to try, okay, what if we use a different kind of algorithm? How would, yeah. how would the same thing Can you make it better, out? maybe? 
Yeah, I think that makes sense. And, and, and it also makes you able to, and that's kind of what I was fishing for, it also makes you able to just understand a much wider range of situations because it's so costly to actually do this auditing in practice, right? Like, I remember Piotr trying to do something with Google Maps at one, <laughs> one point, and it's like you could fill like three podcasts with just the crazy shit that he bumped into and in trying to get data out of that, right? So, so it, it really, really is difficult. And here, you can just explore more situations, and then the cost in as i see it is also that someone can be what to say well well it's not real like it's not what's happening and in the real system it would be different right and then you it's you have to work a little harder to close that gap i think totally think that you can close it but i think it it opens up like a, a yeah, sliver of, of space for for criticism in, in that regard right yeah of course um but we were sort of lucky in the sense that there was already a lot of work on really the workers themselves yeah like what what is going on in the system from the yeah. worker's perspective and kind of what goes wrong. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. at least focusing on the problems, we had a lot of intuition from these papers. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's wild. I mean, I think that the, the results of multiple centers changing everything, time of day changing everything, average flows and so on. I think it's, it's not, like it's not something that you could be like of course <laughs> of course it'll be like that maybe after you've seen it you can begin to understand some of these mechanisms but that's exactly like the complex systems part of it right yeah super cool and actually um maybe just to add one more thing we what was really cool is that we looked at a lot of so these workers they're kind of outspoken about <laughs> yeah. how upset they are or even just wanting to get information so there's a lot of like fora, fora and, and, yeah. and blogs and twitter and everything where where they actually try to find out exactly the things yeah yeah but I mean yeah. <laughs> but this reminds me of you know Michael Zell who is um, who does uh, traffic research and also did a like he's kind of works on bikes and also on ride sharing and stuff he also invented his own computer game <laughs> right oh, yeah. like called Pardis <laughs> and he <laughs> and he once told me that he wanted to write a, a book that's called what it's like to be a god and that's because he had all these like uh, people playing his game and he exactly knew all the algorithms and all the rules and then the he he could observe the players discussing <laughs> what uh, what wonder what the rules are and forming elaborate theories about you know, like how how does it work, and what's the mechanics of this, and what's the mechanics of that, right? And and in a beautiful way, this and but he knew exactly how it worked, and his game was not kind of a a, a big mishmash of of con like it was in a way straightforward, right? And and so so he 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 had this sense of he was a god in that game that he knew the rules and he knew the laws of nature, and in some weird way, this takes us. <laughs> it takes us back to this question, right? Of does it make sense to do this kind of research? And and this is uh, like I asked with like what are the reasons that you should actually try and audit and measure these systems? Mm -hmm. And here's like another wild thing, which is you know in the te in the sense of Uber, like they know a lot of these things too, right? Like there there is. You know, like there is this famous story about this like God dashboard <laughs> that they had in some headquarters where they can see all the cars and all the traffic and so on. So, so 
it's some somehow there's like a connection here. I mean, it's somehow in their interest to not give this control. Yeah. But let's let's just figure that out because I see that you're right. But why is it that it's is it? What would what would the drivers do if they knew it? Would would <laughs> like wouldn't they like um, yeah? <laughs> I'm just trying to understand. Like now that we have it out, I just want to get like uh, think about it with you. <laughs> sure. <laughs> like, wouldn't it? Would I mean, I feel like there is a lot of like theory, sociological theory on this more generally. Why yeah. it's good to take away control from workers, but maybe let's just focus on Uber. <laughs> you can also t- like st- you know give no, me no, the theory. I, I'm really not the expert <laughs> in that, but. <laughs> I'm not an expert on anything, and I, mean, I, I still heard about have these Chinese workers, yeah, like physical workers who wear these hats that yeah. chase their brain activity, and just like pulls them out of the line at random times, uh, and set, tells them like take a ten minute break. Oh, and wow. like there is this theory. I mean, I heard a talk about this from a scientist, and his theory was that they don't actually do it because those workers are less productive at that time, but really kind no. of to uh, to like show their control. That's wild. And apparently it works. Like like these workers don't think of unionizing or like rioting or... No, no, because they, they're working for... An, like it's again, it's like how to be a god, right? Like they're working for a godlike machinery that knows everything about them. So why would you even... Why would you even yeah. try anything? But I think... What I was trying to get at with the with the Uber drivers is was just mm. this idea to say like if they knew everything, they wouldn't they, start. No, may, working right. May, no, no, but it, but in a way, but they could optimize and they could I actually did. make sure that like there is also a thing to say like if they had global information, they don't have to do their own local. Yeah. Okay. I see what you're getting at. I mean, I think there is okay. There is an inherent. Um, contradiction between optimizing for profit and optimizing for for sort of these like socially um, yeah how do you call these <laughs> sorry I'm, my brain is frozen <laughs> it's like okay. socially desirable outcomes yeah yeah for example uh, yeah some kind of guarantees on how much you're going to earn by the end of the week yes no no but it could also just be that people like if they had global information, people would be like, "I'm not going to work right now." Like there's no, ah, <laughs> there's no point true, of me of yeah. going, right? Because uh, there are no rights to get, and all the, like there, the, it. I think it would also be something like that. So it's to kind of ensure that in this kind of gig economy, when you have no <laughs> salary, if things are shitty, like then if people knew how pointless it would, like yeah, yeah. But but on the flip side, I think that the system could probably run more optimally. If people had like during kind of the like maximally um, busy times, maybe I don't know. Who? Yeah, potentially. <laughs> but I feel like it's it would be like a different philosophy that they don't want to switch to. <laughs> really? Yeah, no, no. I understand that. Like yeah. you were making a point that in a way it's about not just what's optimal, but it's also about like how do you keep a population that has terrible working conditions in check, (laughs) right? Like that's... And the thing is that, at least anecdotally, uh, people who are kind of the the lower tail of the income, they just quit 
and there's new people coming. So yeah. there's like such a low entry barrier. Do you remember how we talked about academia and how it's good to know <laughs> what you need to do to get to the next level and so on? <laughs> yes. I'm just putting that out there, <coughs> not mentioning any uh, any names of um, people or universities, but did we cover it? Did we get to the... Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we covered the paper? Um, the paper, sorry. The paper or the talk? I, I, are we feeling good about it? We're a little bit like we're a little bit over an hour. I don't want to. Uh, Maybe just can I just say one? Yeah, thing? Say as many as you like. <laughs> like this. we can do another so half hour. So we tried an algorithm. Yes. That does things more fairly. Yes. Uh, instead of connecting someone with the closest driver, they will connect with the closest who so far earned the least, mm -hmm. which is like a super simple change. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't change the overall uh, throughput of the system much, yes. but it guarantees uh, much better equality. Mm -hmm. and, uh, I mean, I think the reason I'm mentioning this, I mean, I think it's a kind of a cool result and a cool idea, yeah. but also um, there is maybe like a higher level point to make, which is that if you try to kind of create fairness uh, with this over time guarantee, so yeah, so what we're really talking about is this repeated interaction of the user with the system, and yeah. you don't want to make it fair in every single step, but maybe you want to give some guarantee at the end of the week or yeah. month. Yes. You can actually do this pretty easily without much loss in profit. Yes. So get on it, Uber. <laughs> <laughs> right? That's the that's the message. God damn it. I, I also now remembered one thing I wanted to ask you about sure. that came up, but I didn't want to interrupt you, which is this there's like a new paper out about the YouTube rabbit hole. Right? And so someone so 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 um so so the story used to be that basically like, okay, so so you're on YouTube and you're looking uh for uh you look up, uh, I don't know, 9-11, uh, uh, right? And then what you want is a kind of a documentary about what happened, but <laughs> immediately you get served something that has some kind of yeah. political slant, and then you pay, like top click uh, and top uh, suggestion, and very quickly you're deep in conspiracy yeah. land. Uh, or similarly with diets right like you're like oh, oh i need to look good in my uh, swimsuit and you watch a <laughs> video on getting in shape and then like uh three clicks later you're like in pro anorexia uh, rabbit hole <laughs> <laughs> right St stuff like that and that, that was like a big story and then someone actually went to try and measure it recently and they found that it's not so bad and then people are like ah it's not so bad it's just a it's just a story. Um, but then there's also the thing that, well, since the story came out, maybe YouTube worked on the algorithms, knowing that this was a problem, trying to fix some of it. So like how much how much does a study done in 2020 say about YouTube in 2017 or 18 or whenever this was a problem? And I just wanted to hear if you had any thoughts on that because you're kind of the... I and, and I should say, just to be very clear to the audience, I only read about this on Twitter. Almost all of it. <laughs> I haven't actually read the paper. So yeah, it's like I a think very there high level. I multiple papers, actually. Yeah. And even a paper with simulations. 
Um, so I haven't seen this specific result, but it's an interesting question. I think my intuition would be to say not much. Like, it's it's not very traceable how the interface changes and how the algorithms underneath change. Yeah. Um, and I would say that even a small change can have big effects. Yeah. As you just illustrated with the <laughs> with the with yeah, your own simulation. So, so I do think that what we need to shoot for so like these one time studies are very good for uh, for detecting some problem that we didn't know about yet. Yeah. But like setting up some kind of monitoring system is maybe more the the way to go. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And also, I mean, I don't know what this study says about kind of extreme situations. So, like, maybe overall, there's yeah. not much that much of getting lost in a rabbit hole, but we don't know about kind of special demographics and and special yes. topics. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. So, so something like that is, and I think that's also the message from the beginning, it's just incredibly hard to study, right? Like... um like even like if we go back to the dub 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 paper that you talked about with measuring google personalization you could say well all of your accounts were like newborn accounts and they could also be different from you know like my thing where google has been collecting data for i don't know like 10 years right and so so the, maybe the personalization is less on the newborn accounts and show something but yeah. like it's so hard so hard yeah, to measure and also, this. i mean what google told me actually after that talk they came up to me yeah and they were kind of jokingly telling me how much more they could do but decide yeah. not to do yes because it would freak people out or it wouldn't make sense from whatever ux perspective but you know at any moment they could decide to implement you know with that knowledge and but it it can be very mild and still freak you out like i remember when they started doing this thing that you would search on something on google maps and then when you got to your phone to type in directions like they would have the last thing you searched for and it's like super convenient and great but the first time you see it you're like what the because it's making you aware that behind these things that you think of as two separate units like your laptop and your phone there's just like a nice big fat connection yeah. and like to the Google algorithm, it's all it's all the same words. And it's they all really just cater data. to this illusion because they actually purposefully implement different things on your laptop than on your phone. Yeah. Even though th- to them it's the same thing. But they just know that people's tolerance for personalization is more on the phone. So that's... That's so wild. That's yeah. All right. That's a great note to maybe wrap it up on sure we've got with so any we have a crying baby outside i can yeah i can hear i can hear her <laughs> let's let's get you to the baby thank you so much for like a sure. really uh enlightening and uh fun it's really talk. fun cool cool really good all right i'm gonna uh hit the big button and then we can uh, talk to babies <laughs> thank you podcast was recorded produced and edited by me that's uh, Suna. in case you're wondering it's been partially funded by the Willem foundation and by the technical university of denmark the awesome music is by Waylon thornton 
and can be found at the Free Music Archive, or at least that's where I found it. And there's also a little bit of music by me. Now, thank you, and have a nice day.